It goes without saying that being an athlete is challenging. Being an athlete who also happens to be a student is exceptionally challenging. For those who have succeeded in mastering the art of combining both athletic aspiration and academic achievement, you by proxy create a ton of really valuable life skills. You know how to prioritize. You know how to manage your time very well. You know how to create successful relationships and to make sure that everything is being taken care of. Success as a student athlete often leads to success as a person, as a business member, as a member of professional society as a whole. While the specific path to becoming successful as a student athlete depends on the person, what they oftentimes share in common is a very positive, constructive, and motivated coach who are capable of helping guide them from one benchmark goal to the next and helping them turn success into success and failure into success. Today, we have Tim Hall, coach of Lees McRae College, on the show with us, somebody who has a track record of incredible athletic and academic accomplishments for his athletes, both at Lees McRae and at his predecessor university, Cumberland. There is nothing but happiness and positivity in this episode, and I am so excited to share all of Tim's positivity with you. My name is Rob Kelly. This is Criterium Nation, a show about life. Live one corner at a time. We are brought to you by our friends at Manscaped, manscaped manscaped.com, the creators of the Lawnmower 4.0 and a host of other men's grooming products. I am getting ready to go down to the Project Echelon team camp here. I'm recording this episode before I leave. And in order to get ready to meet the men of Project Echelon, I want to make sure that I am looking my best all the way around, top to bottom. I don't plan on getting into a swimsuit when I'm around the guys because it's going to be warm in North Carolina, but not that warm. But still, I want to make sure that I look my best, which is why I'm using my Manscaped Ultra Premium Collection Grooming Kit, along with the Lawnmower 4.0, which is designed to help reduce nicks and abrasions, reduce the risk of ingrown hairs and other grooming accidents, and the Weed Whacker to make sure that, you know, my nose and ears don't reflect my 43 years of life as opposed to the 22 years of life or 23 years of life of some of the guys who I'm going to be riding with over the next couple of days. If you want to look your best for anybody, for your workmates, for your office mates, for your loved ones, from the neighbors walking down the street, make sure to go over to manscaped.com and check out their full lineup. And when you find out what it is that you want in life, use the promo code CRITERIUMNATION for 20% off plus free shipping. That's CRITERIUMNATION for 20% off plus free shipping. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. WideAnglePodium.com is the home for that. It is the world's, the universes, the multiverses, only home for independent cycling content. There is a full bevy of shows, Cyclocross Radio, Slow Ride Podcast, Nowhere Fast, The Grodio, all of these creators doing exceptional work, including Michael Bodekheimer, who's just started releasing his Hot Laps summer videos on the Wide Angle Podium YouTube channel. Go there, check out the work that Michael is doing. Make sure you subscribe so you're kept up to date. Last year, he was with the men and women of Automatic Racing, helping tell their story as they went around the country racing crits all over the place. He's released one episode already from Armed Forces Cycling Classic, and I'm hoping that by the time this show airs, he'll have released a second one because I am ready to binge watch some more. WideAnglePodium.com. Go there. Please become a subscriber and help support this content creator-driven effort. So it's Tim Hall, y'all, the head coach from Lees McRae College. We've got him for the hour here, and we're going to be talking collegiate cycling, positivity, and how you create motivation. And we're doing all that right now.
my name is Tim Hall, and I live on Beach Mountain in North Carolina. We are in the western portion, high up in the mountains. I uh, live about 5,000 feet. I am the director and head cycling coach of Lees McRae College, and my profession is a collegiate cycling coach. That blows my mind that there's a place on the East Coast that's elevation is right about 5,000 feet. What is it? What is that world around Banner Elk in, in Western North Carolina kind of look like? Because it's not Clemson, it's not UNC, it's not Duke. This is a part of the state that not a lot of people venture into. I bet you it's not really close to I-40. No, but it is a destination, surprisingly. Uh, it, we're not easy to get to, and it is a different world. We're nestled in the Blue Ridge Mountains, and uh, it's an outdoor person's paradise, uh, the whole area. If you love to hike, if you love to uh, ride bicycles, mountain bike, road bike, if you enjoy water of any kind, uh, skiing, we have two ski resorts within 10 minutes of campus. I live a half a mile from the Beach Mountain Resort, ski resort. It is a, it's a very unique place and the elevation does provide some unique living experiences, uh, especially in the winter. Uh, we have fabulous summers where the temperature doesn't get above 80 degrees. And, and we like to say pretty often just how special of a place it is. And once you come here to visit, you quickly understand what that means because you're just surrounded by mouth-watering views, mountains, and just a, a really wonderful place to, uh, to live and to play. We're here to talk about collegiate cycling. As a, as a universe of, of competition and sport and kind of how the collegiate athlete is uh, in a unique phase in his or her life. But in order to get to those conversations, we got to talk a little bit more about what a collegiate cycling program like Lee's McRae is. And, you know, to get context, how big of a school is Lee's McRae? It's small. Uh, we have a little over 700 students on campus total. If you included uh, other campuses and online, it's it's a bit more. But on campus, day to day, we have a little over 700 small, private, liberal arts, strong academic programs. My favorites are business and uh, nursing and biology. That tends to be what we attract. But uh, it's a traditional liberal arts college, very small. It's been here since 1900. Uh, it was founded for the purpose of providing opportunity of education for women in the area. And it uh, has just continued to grow and grow over the years and really is a staple within our little community. Our space is a little bit different than the other sports on campus. We are, uh, believe it or not, we are an NCAA Division II school. And our team is... I think it's fair to say one of the more prominent teams on campus just because of the number of athletes we have on the team and the recognition that we bring through uh, the competitions that we do and the success we have had throughout our 20-plus uh, year history. So it's just, a, it's just a small school that if you're thinking of coming to Lees McRae, you, you're doing it because you want that intimate setting and you want that day-to-day -day relationship that you can have with your classmates, with your uh, with your teammates, with uh, your professors. And I think that's the one thing that a small school like ours really provides is it's just uh, more intimate than if you were going to one of those larger schools where you're one of 20 or 40 or 50,000 kids. Uh, it's really tough to stand out. But at Lee's McRae, everybody has a chance to be somebody and stand out in the crowd. Tell us about the cycling program at Lee's McRae. How many athletes are in, in a part as a part of the program right now? We have 40 total riders and we have, uh, we're one team. Uh, we have 28 men, 12 women, and that fluctuates, uh, give or, or take a few riders on, on each side. So we've been bouncing back and forth between upper thirties to low forties for these past few years. And it largely depends of course, on how many you graduate every year. And last spring we graduated 11 this coming spring we graduate seven and so we tailor our recruiting efforts around that and have tried our best to maintain around 40 
My goal is to add more women. I think the sweet spot for us would be 15 to 20 women. Uh, we are, we're actively trying to get to that point. I think that would make for a much more robust experience for all our ladies, especially with trying to compete and be competitive in the three key disciplines for us that we do. Uh, and, and ordinarily we have, you know, more guys because as you know, and I'm sure your listeners know, there's just far more men in this sport out there competing than there are women. But all of us in collegiate cycling are doing everything we can to provide those opportunities for the ladies to be a part of what it is that we do, you know, really essentially piggyback off of what NICA has been able to achieve over the course of what they've accomplished with high school mountain biking. So uh, it's a great opportunity for young kids to further their cycling career, develop it into what they, whatever they want it to become, uh, and get an education along the way. I, I imagine we're going to talk about Nike a little bit and what they've done. You know, this is primarily a crit racing podcast. So sometimes when you talk about Nike, people don't know what Nike is because as far as I can tell, there's no crit racing component to, to high school mountain biking. Can you just give us kind of a quick and dirty on what that is? Yeah. So Nike is, is a national organization for high school mountain biking. They even dip down into middle school nowadays. It started in California in the last five to six years has spread rapidly. Uh, most states have a NICA league now, and then there's some independent high school leagues in some states, but uh, they provide an opportunity. It's for young kids to uh, be on a high school team. Uh, it It is a, that story in and of itself, it certainly deserves its, I think, on own podcast by everybody that's associated with cycling because they are doing a tremendous amount of work that is feeding into all the things that I'm doing. And frankly, a lot of, I'm sure, people that you and your listeners uh, know or, or you're talking to have come from that. The, the now the number of people who've graduated from it are, are significant, and some are Olympians and world champions currently. It's a, it's a fabulous program that really introduces cycling, mountain biking, uh, cross-country specifically to young people who would otherwise have no, no real venue and opportunity to really do it the way that other sports in high school have. Other sports, as you know, just have that pipeline for decades and decades and decades. And, and it hasn't been until the past 20 years that cycling has had that same thing through NICA. And we're, we're all benefiting uh, and I say we, all of us in collegiate cycling are benefiting from that because many of them are taking it to college and continuing and, and furthering that. The reason why I know who you are is largely because of, you know, your online social media presence, you know, and because of the renown of the athletes that have come through Lee's McRae, you know. Carrie Werner stayed with me this summer during Intelligentsia Cup. Well, he stayed with me in my parents' house while we were cleaning out my parents' house in Chicago. And I hope you put him to work. We put him to work hard, and it, but it was a lot yeah, of fun. Good. So, <laughs> you know, I made a joke to him about your online social media presence, how motivational it is, how positive it is, and how it has helped me get out of bed in the morning. You know, and I've 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 drew a distinction or an analogy between you and one of the Nike athletes. I think you were talking about Kate Courtney, the Sparkle addict, and how amazingly positive she is. Now, you've been a college coach for seventeen years. About you've know, been at Lee's McRae for eight years. How does somebody get into the world of coaching? Is this like a genetic predisposition you have towards positivity and in training? Is this just what you were taught to do through education? How did you get into this? Ooh, that's uh, that's a big one. And two, and really two different, two separate things, you know, first on the positivity side, uh, I first have to thank my parents. <laughs> you know, I was very fortunate that my parents stayed together and always supported me and what I wanted to do. Didn't mean they always liked what I wanted to do, but they would always support me. And the thing that I never heard, I never heard no. Never heard no to don't do something. I never heard no that I could not do something. I, I just never grew up with that. And they always simply supported 
what I wanted to do and did their very best to do that. And through those experiences with them and them encouraging me and taking me to games and getting me all the little things that I needed in every situation when I had a chance to move on to a better thing than what I was doing at the time, they found a way to make it it happen from going to uh, one league to the next, from uh, going to a uh, just a basic ball team to a travel team to I still to this day don't know how I was able to go to college the first two years, all due to my parents. And through all that, had amazing coaches. I've been very, very fortunate to have had Hall of Fame level coaches throughout my life. And it makes a big difference when you're surrounded by people who don't ever tell you no. And in fact, they're planting seeds in you that make you think that are, you know, that they're a little crazy because they can see that you can do things that you haven't yet decided that you can do it, but they see something in you that says you can. And so as I was doing all that, and, and then to this day, it still happens because I'm, I'm close with a, a lot of people that I grew up with is primarily coaches. And that just had, that rubbed off on me. All of that uplifting support that I received took me a long way in athletics and took me a long way uh, ath- uh, academically and just in general. It's helped me to just be who I am and to rebound in any given situation, no matter how well or horrible something went. It, it's helped me to, to be resilient and not always confident, but at least believing that I could do something. And there's one thought that I've always had growing up, and I still have it now. And I try to impart this on our, on our athletes uh, to this day. And that is, what's the alternative? I don't like the alternative. You know, I don't think any of us really like the alternative. The alternative to positivity is negativity or something that's going to make you feel worse about yourself. I don't like that. <laughs> I like the thing that's going to help me be better. So one of the reasons why I say the things I do or the messages that I put out there is that I'm hoping at least one person reads it and it helps them that day. I know it doesn't help everybody every day, but I know that at least one person's going to see it and read it and benefit from it and it's going to help them. And I get the feedback that that tells me that's true, but it's also a measure of accountability for myself because if I put this stuff out there, I have to live up to that. And I always just think about the alternative. The alternative to what you want is is usually worse. And so when I think about that, I just go straight towards the thing in everything that I do that's going to lead to the best outcome. It doesn't mean that I achieve it. It doesn't mean that it works out for me. It just means that I'm not going to dwell on the downside of any of that. I'm just going to dwell on what's going to get the most out of me to be the best I can be. And not only that, but how through that do I set the example for other people? Is that how you came up with the name of your podcast? Does that sort of theory of life lend towards under the sun? Somewhat, yes. I am a fan of Solomon, King Solomon in the Bible. Anyone out there, I just would encourage you to read Ecclesiastes. And he writes about chasing the wind and what it looks like to chase the wind. I don't ever want to be chasing the wind. He's known for his pursuit of wisdom. That's what King Solomon is known for. He's also known as uh, the, the, the greatest king of Israel. And he writes and tells about his pursuit of wisdom and what is the meaning of life. And under the sun is a derivative of that. He, he, that, is a, that is something that is mentioned within that book. And it's something I dwell on every single day. It's like, how, how can I be better? How can I help other people be better? How does all that fit within why are we here? Why are we doing what we are doing? And what does it mean for me? What does it mean for other people? And the podcast name was essentially that, is that everything under the sun is, is, just, is just that very thing uh, of talking with people, helping them to express themselves and tell their stories in the hope that through it, someone's going to take something from that. In the moment they hear it, they're going to hear it, and they needed that thing right then 
to help them do what they needed to do right then. I love stories. I love telling stories. I love hearing stories. I've always been more interested in other people than, than wanting to do something like this. Like I, I'm, I really appreciate this opportunity uh, to be able to share these things, but, but I'm more interested in other people, which is why I started the podcast and, and I started it. The name is one thing, but I started it because I was having amazing conversations with people. And I'm sure you can relate to this. You're, you, you're talking to a friend or talking to someone, you know, and you're, you're, you're telling a really good story or they are, and it's a meaningful one. It's something that you're taking something from it and you're giving and taking. And you know that, boy, I got to a point where I finally just said, I I should start recording these because this is good stuff. This is, this is information other people need to hear because if they hear this, they're going to grow from this. And that was my motivation for starting the podcast. And, you know, it's a work in progress, as I'm sure you can relate to. And it's a, it's a labor of love, for sure. Lord knows there's plenty of podcasts out there that people could listen to. And, you know, if, if only one listens to it, I'm fine if it helps them. I don't, I'm not doing it to have some massive following. I'm doing it because someone needs to hear it and someone has a great story to tell. And other people can learn through the, the experiences of other people. I'm going to reach back into one of the things that you had just said there, one of the comments that you had just said there to drive our conversation forward. You had talked about ball sports, traditional ball sports, baseball, football, basketball. I don't know how hockey gets tossed into the ball sport, but we can toss hockey in there too. My understanding is you didn't grow up in the cycling world. You came to this sport from the ball sport world. Is that right? That's true. You were a a really very accomplished baseball player, correct? That is also true. So, you know, your experience with baseball, high school, college, minor leagues, did you go any further? I made it to my final spring training was in 95 with the Atlanta Braves, and I was uh, working out with the double-A team. And I was either going to Greenville to play double-A, I was a catcher, or I was going home. Major league teams are notorious for keeping catchers to the very last second. They need somebody to catch all those bullpens of the pitchers. And uh, got down to the last day in 95, and uh, I went home. So, yeah, that was, um, yeah, that was a, a four-year career professionally that I, I got to enjoy. How did it feel leaving the sport the way that you did when you did it, you know, because the 19, the mid 1990s Atlanta Braves are part of that like legendary crew of teams. They're, you know, (laughs) their record in the 90s. I mean, that's Greg Maddox. That's Chipper Jones. You know, I, I, John Smoltz, there's like phenomenal Hall of Famers who are playing on that team and you're their teammate. You're there in spring training with them, but you also go home. How did that feel to you? Uh, well, I'd had some experience building up to that moment. Like you as a, as a minor league player, I wasn't highly drafted. I was you know drafted in the mid round. So it wasn't a top pick. It's a different experience in the minors for, guys who are first round picks or maybe in the top five, it's a completely different experience for them because teams are, are they've made a big investment in them and those guys are going to play. And guys in, in my range, uh, it gets a little bit tough to crack the lineup. So by that point, I knew what, what the score was. You know, I knew that I was going to have to do something exceptional to be able to stick around. And, and you're right. I actually dropped out of college that February, late January, to go to this spring training. I didn't have this invite uh, to go until last minute, and I dropped out of college, went to spring training. I was not ready. That was another reason why that contributed to to getting released was because I didn't have an invite, I wasn't preparing as if I did have one uh, or a season coming up, and so... When the invite came, I, I jumped at it and quickly did what I could to be prepared, but uh, it wasn't enough. And again, it was just one of those things where it was either 
either I was going to get enough opportunities to prove myself and it was going to, I was going to execute, which was going to be difficult. But uh, if it didn't, I knew what was going to happen. And I'd been released once before by San Diego Padres. And to just to give a comparison, like the, the reason why the Braves, I did get to learn why the Braves were so successful because I experienced the Padres for a few years and then the Braves that one spring training and their culture was so much more healthier than that of the Padres. And at the time, the Padres had, they had Tony Gwynn, they had Fred McGriff, they had uh, Gary Sheffield, they had, they had some big name ball players. But the culture of the minor leagues wasn't such that, that they would go above and beyond to help you get better. And the Braves were completely opposite. Their entire ethos through that organization was uh, for you to be successful. And if you're good enough, you'll stick around. And I didn't. And it wasn't really that hard in that moment for me to adjust to that because I was within 17 hours of finishing my undergraduate degree. And I was fortunate. As soon as that happened, I was able to enroll through the summer, finish 17 hours during the summer get my undergrad degree. And then I literally finished an exam on one night to finish that. And then the next day started my master's of business. And, you know, for the next 18 months, just focused on education for two years straight. So I had something that I could go straight into that I was ready for it. When you're a ball player, you're making no money. Like, I mean, cyclists can identify with this. I made, uh, I think my first year was only like 850 a month. I think the most I made in a year was a thousand a month. So you get sort of tired of being broke. <laughs> and uh, I was ready to work. I was ready to get my degrees and just get out there into the to the business world and get going. But, but things changed a few years after that. There are so many amazing analogies in what you just said there between baseball and all sport in general, but cycling. You know, the idea of getting in over your head for one thing, but also preparation and making sure that you are confronting what you are getting yourself ready to confront what you need to confront and know that you're going to confront. Because there's a lot of us who have gone to a race and been like, wish I could have trained a little bit harder, but I guess this is just the world that I'm going to have to live in. But the one analogy that I want to talk about in cycling between that Braves clubhouse or that Padres clubhouse and Lee's McRae or any other successful program is this concept of, of team, of unity. Road cycling in specific is a sport that I've said celebrates the individual who has to rely on his or her teammates to make accomplishments. We celebrate the podium rider, but what we forget about all of their accomplishments of the individual is owed to the team. First off, do you agree with that? And second, if you do agree with that, how do you try to train young athletes to buy into that theory? Whew. Well, definitely agree. Very much been a team player all my life. I mean, I think anyone wanting to accomplish anything, you can't do it by yourself. That's one thing we talk about a lot on our team. No one accomplishes anything by themselves. And it does take help and support from your teammates. It, it may or may not be actually on the road or on the trails that they're helping you in some sort of tactical manner, but there's encouragement. There is accountability. There is a training partner. There is somebody there to affirm that you're going in the right direction and experience it with. I mean, I saw this documentary a few years ago, and this one CEO said something that really stood out to me. And his, it's something he learned from his mentor, and it was success unshared is failure. Okay, that's, that's a bold statement. Back that one up. Explain that one for us. Well, this individual was coming from motor racing. And if you can think about, you again, I could use baseball analogies all day long, and I'll try to use cycling as, as much as I can. But 
you know, I know a lot of your listeners are are road racers, and and that's where I began, you know, my introduction into the sport and racing, and and in fact, uh, if if I was going to choose one discipline that I'm probably most proficient and best at, it is crit racing. That's my thing. That's my that's the thing I love to do the most. But that unless you're by yourself in a in a in a race with the only one wearing the jersey, you still had some people supporting and helping you along the way, family, friends, someone receiving encouragement. But the point was with his comment and it resonated with me and I see it every day. I see it every day on campus. I see it in training rides. I see it when we're at events. I see it from the moment we step out of the bus and we set up our footprint to the moment we pack up and go. I see it with my own eyes, people helping one another do what they need to do to put one another in a successful position down from actually, you know, covering a move in an attack in a race down to somebody needs a mechanical adjustment in between race runs on a mountain bike and that they can't do that. They need help to do that. And so I think why do any of us become part of a team? It's because we want to experience it with other people. It's more fun. We're social. The whole point of going on a group ride is to be social. The whole point to go out and race is to see how you stack up against everybody else. And you, you know that in order, no matter how good you are, you're going to need some help to cover all the moves and to, and to put you in the best position to be successful. And it's just cycling is a sport that's more fun. You know, we're not playing golf. We're not playing tennis. We're not triathletes. We're, we're bicycle racers. And we chose this. And so if we're choosing this, we actually choose to be on a team. You know full well that you have your role. You bring your strengths and weaknesses to the table. Everyone brings their strengths and weaknesses to the table. And we're all going to go farther if we combine those the right way and work together. And, and if we don't, well, it's not going to be a very fun experience. But if we do, it has the potential to be something really special. I'm not sure if this question's going to work, but I'm going to ask it anyways. And you can tell me I'm wrong. Sure. You used a word that I love to think about, which is accountability and holding ourselves accountable, whether it is us holding ourselves accountable or others holding ourselves accountable, you know, a key to success is accountability. You are dealing with a lot of 18-year-olds. You know, there's a vast difference in my life experience when I walked through the door at the University of Kansas in, 2000, in 1997 at the age of 18 and when I walked out of there five years later. I took a victory lap, which is how I actually got the opportunity to start racing bikes because I took that fifth year. You know, the version of Rob Kelly who graduated from the University of Kansas at the age of 23 was vastly different than the 18-year-old. How do you explain to that young man or woman coming out of high school that you have to be accountable to not only to yourself, but to other people? How do you drive that home? Well, it does take four plus years usually to be able to really get that through. And it's one of those things where this is a, another say, a statement I say to the team a lot is that uh, you have to live it to learn it. And uh, there's a lot of things that I say to them or to others. And, you know, we hear good advice and sound counsel and wisdom and knowledge all the time, but we don't always apply it because we're not yet putting ourselves in circumstances to do it. But once we live it, we usually learn it, and uh, or at least most of us do. I, li I like what you said about when you arrived at Kansas and you're a freshman, and, and that person that you were when you graduated was very different. And, it, and so one of the things that I can relate through our team and what I say to, say, an incoming freshman is the goal is that a year from now, sophomore you, we want to be able to say that sophomore you is going to kick the butt of freshman you, that, that you're going to progressively get better. It's not all going to happen in a year, but that you're going to be in position 
if you execute on a daily basis and you're consistent, consistency is the is the thing that you need. Consistency in anything that you do, you have to have that. If you have consistency over time, you're going to see the changes in the growth. But the goal is to get them to see that each and every year as you reflect and look back that whatever current version you are, that that person can beat your former self of a year ago or two years ago. You first definitely have to learn the art of leading yourself first. And that's a challenge for people leaving home for the first time, many of them, leaving college, and they have a tremendous amount of freedom. I know my freshman year at Cumberland University way back in 1988, I didn't handled that freedom all that well the first year. I took too much of it. And uh, I paid the consequences for that through uh, my grades a little bit. Some things had to happen for me to to step up. I was stepping up on the ball field, but I was, I was making some mistakes off the field. And uh, it was partly me just letting myself down and it was a series of mistakes. And so, you know, for us, I feel like my job is to talk about these things on the front end, to let them know this is what's coming down the pike. This is the things that you're going to go through. And every single day, you're going to have a choice to make a decision about what do you need to get done today? What's going to help you be better today? And just focus on today. In fact, just today, I had a meeting with our women. And the only thing we talked about was how to generate momentum, how to generate momentum, how long it takes for you to realize you generated momentum and then what that becomes and how that affects your self-motivation, but that you have to start today. What is the thing that you need to do today and then do the same thing tomorrow, just win each and every single day. And then once someone is able to generate that for themselves where they've developed that consistency and they are a good decision maker, then if they have the strength of mind and they have the voice to do it is to find ways to have that relationship with their teammates where they're offering that to them and they're talking to them. They're pointing out when, hey, why are you doing that? That maybe you should try it this way or you shouldn't do that thing because it's not going to take you where you think it's going to go. It is something that I try to help them find ways to help themselves to hold themselves accountable, but then hold others accountable. Because one of the downsides of collegiate cycling is that so many of them come to it and they don't have a ball sport background where there is a, there's accountability. I mean, every single day, one way or another, and eventually you're either in the lineup or you're not in the lineup. And then what are you going to do about that? Are you going to fight your way back into the lineup? Cycling don't, doesn't have that same accountability structure and doesn't have, not, again, back to NICA, NICA does afford this a little bit where it gives these kids a, a bit of a team structure and environment. But in cycling, everybody gets to compete, you know? So it doesn't matter how prepared or not you are, you can show up and still race. Other sports, you cannot get away with that. So I think that's one thing about cycling that everybody knows. Oh, I don't have to do this today. But there's going to be a price to pay. And are you going to be willing to pay that or not? And I try to remind our team that the thing that I, I have to cope with and confront and deal with, and the th- it's, the thing that, it's the one thing that I really love and it's the thing that hurts me the most. And that is I'm the one that's there at the end of the race. I'm there. I see their facial expressions. I see their body language. I hear their words. I see how they interact with uh, their teammates or not. And, and then the conversation happens like, okay, how'd that go today? And, and I mean, I know how it went, uh, just based on body language and tone and, or maybe it's joyful, you know, there's a lot of joy that takes place. And, and, and why did that happen? You know, what did we do right that resulted in, in this joyful experience? I'm the one that is there at each and every time. And I remind them of that feeling. Remember that. Don't ever forget this feeling. Now, what's it going to take to capitalize on that joy or what's it going to take from this day moving forward to do different and better so that you don't feel like this again? 
and they know the answers. These kids know the answers. It's just a matter of developing that consistency to be able to do it. I want to come back to failure because I know that you and Matt Zimmer had a wonderful conversation about having a conversation about failure in cycling and the unique nature of how you got to kind of just dwell and live with it because you don't get to compete tomorrow like you would in baseball, for example. 162 games, there's a lot of success, there's a lot of failure. But I want to talk about the structure of collegiate cycling since that's what this show is about. Tell us broad scopes working into the more narrow you know, is this an NCAA sport? Is this a sport that's divided among geographic regions? How does, on the road, collegiate cycling work? First, before I forget, I will come back to how did I, I didn't plan to be a coach, by the way. You had mentioned earlier about getting into this. No, this was not on my radar. I didn't plan to be this, but here I am. So what is it? No, it's not an NCAA sport. And that's, I think, on in total, a really good thing. Uh, it's a good thing that it's not. But many NCAA institutions like ours do have cycling as a sport. There is a club division. There's a varsity division. The clubs are predominantly you know, state schools, larger universities. And there's just this small pocket of us who are what are called varsity. I don't know what the exact number right now, how many of us there are. There's like 18 to 23, somewhere in that range. It kind of goes up and down over time. But the distinction is that on the clubs, those are student run. They are through typically the the clubs and intramural sports department of the university. They usually have a, a guide and a sponsor that, you know, oversees it, but it's not a coach. And the kids are on their own. They've got to fundraise themselves. They got to take themselves to races. They got to pay for everything. And sometimes the schools do provide some financial support, but it's all on the kids. And kudos to them for all the clubs out there that do what they do. And there's some really good, strong club programs uh, doing doing really well. But on our side, uh, varsity, there's a handful of distinctions that set us apart. A few of those are that uh, we do have uh, paid full-time coaches. I have an assistant coach, a full-time assistant coach in conjunction with me. Uh, some schools also have uh, two coaches, but a few, depending upon the size, may only have one uh, who is full-time. Uh, we're fully funded by the schools, meaning that the kids are not having to pay for entry fees, gas, food, lodging, all those things. Uh, I take care of that. Naturally, that's a, a huge burden off of a young student when they're not having to worry about all that stuff to go to a race. Uh, we also provide some partial cycling scholarships. All of the schools are vary in the amounts that they offer and what they have available to offer, you know, through their scholarship funds that they may have. And so those are those are the big things is that, you know, full time coach paid expenses and that there is usually some some modest amount of cycling scholarship. And then above and beyond that, it, it just really depends upon what is available on campus. Like we're very fortunate at Lee's McRae to, uh, as I said, be nestled in the mountains where we have our own mountain bike trails on campus. We have XC trails. We have a downhill trail. We have a dual slalom trail, a dual slalom course. We have cyclocross trails and we have amazing mountainous roads around here that we get to train on. And we have access to other bike parks and bike mountain bike trails nearby. And so in conjunction with that, we've got an amazing facility on campus where we have bike storage and a tool area and Wahoo kicker trainers and, you know, things that add to the, the value of the day-to-day -day experience that an athlete uh, gets to enjoy, much like other sports, you know, be it a gymnasium or a ball field or a clubhouse. Uh, we have those same features. So that varies a good bit from school to school, but in a, in a nutshell, that's, that's what um, encompasses collegiate cycling. Because I know that I have traditionally done the Tidewater Classic. It's put on by the College of William and Mary, my wife's alma mater. They have an A, B, and C road race for college students. And then they throw in, you know, cat one, two, three, four, five races along the way. I was the... Na the runner up in the 2002 
North Central Collegiate Conference Road Race. It's one of my claims to fame. All right. Uh, can tell you all about racing in 35 degrees and rain in Minnesota <laughs> in April. Ooh. You know, what are the, the logistics of it? When is the collegiate road season? Is Lees McRae a part of like the Atlantic Coast Conference, the Atlantic Coast Cycling Conference or the Southeastern Cycling Conference? Is that how we divide these up? What's the structure there? We do have conferences across the country. We're very fortunate here in, we're in the Southeastern Conference, uh, our school is, though we are also in the middle of the Atlantic Coast Conference geographically. We are in the SECCC, and we're fortunate in that in our little area near us, uh, within a you know two to three hour range, we have quite a few other varsity programs just like us in the conference. So the quality of the competition in our in all of our disciplines is is quite outstanding. It's like a a mini regional U twenty three race every weekend, and and so we're very fortunate in our conference because. We have so many schools that are varsity, and we have some amazing clubs like Clemson, Georgia Tech, and uh, and others. So very fortunate there. But the road season for us, we typically start ours in late February. For example, for us, we we're kicking it off this year at Auburn, the last weekend of February. There's a, there is a race at the University of Florida the first weekend of February, but we're not going to make that trip. It's a bit of a too long of a drive. We'd have to miss too much class time. So we're not going to do that, though. I think some of our kids are going to make the drive themselves. But our road season typically starts late February. And for us this year, it's jam packed in late February, all of March. And our conference championship is at Clemson uh, the first weekend of April. And then we have a, a, a little bit of a gap in April before road nationals in early May. But uh, we're, we're looking to add some races at the Hincapie Spring Series this year in April uh, and go to those to keep us sharp and keep us ready. So the pandemic has has changed how a little bit of a crossover uh, happens within us and the Atlantic Coast Conference. Now we're doing quite a bit of dual conference racing uh, where it makes sense uh, with the proximity. For example, North Carolina State has one coming up and that is going to be a dual conference. Also, Appalachian State is going to have one just down the road from us. It's going to be a dual conference race. And the cool part about collegiate is that you can race any collegiate race that you want. It doesn't have to be your conference. You can race in any conference race that you want to. What really adds value to our riders and the con- and the riders of our conference is just the depth and the quality of the racing that we have is outstanding. Whereas in some of the other conferences, they just don't have the field sizes and the depth that that we do. And and it's one of those things that really draws a lot of riders to us and some of our competitors just because the conference is so strong. When it comes from that progression or when it comes to that progression from conference races, so the Auburn race or the Georgia Tech race or William & Mary's Tidewater race, for example, the next level up is the conference championship and then there's nationals. There are there qualification requirements to jump from one race to conference champ to national champ. It's a little tricky. It's different. Our qualification procedures for varsity is a little bit different than club. Uh, for varsity, there's two uh, major qualifications. One, our riders, if to qualify, just to qualify to go to nationals, not that they'll actually get chosen to go, but to get to qualify, they have to compete in uh, three. Mass start A races. So, you know, it could be three road races, could be any combination of road races and crits, uh, but they need at least three. But they also have to have five race days. And that's just for us in, in varsity. Clubs, I think, are still uh, only required to have three, and they have to be three uh, mass starts. So once a rider satisfies that. I mean, we have enough races on our schedule this spring that every rider should be able to do that pretty early in the season uh, to get those qualifications completed. And then it's about who's the sharpest, who's the best prepared. For most of the team, the conference championship is like the highlight. That's that's the big race. And that's the one that's going to tell you whether or not 
you're going in the right direction for the national championship. We make our decisions largely based on that. And you typically have a good idea of who it might be to go to nationals, but you know, you're looking for indicators throughout the season that says someone's making progress. Someone is learning through all of these race experiences. They're making better decisions. Their strength and fitness is improving. And then when we get the nationals, that that is the biggest race. Any national championship for any rider of any discipline, that that is the biggest race. If they're an A rider, that's the one they want to perform best at and get the best result at. And it definitely these days, and I'd say in the past five years or so, those national championship results get noticed. You know, if you win or you're top three in a collegiate race of uh, any kind in a na- at a national championship setting, it gets noticed. And it's an indicator of an ability to, you know, perhaps excel at this at the next level, whatever that that might be. So our kids gun for the national championship, but they also know that you don't just show up there and one off that one. Like there's going to be some indicators along the way that says we have a shot and how are we going to rally together to put ourselves in the best position for our team, number one, to do well, because there's team standings, there's a team omnium, but the goal is to win the race. You know, we want to, we want to win the race. And this year nationals is being held in Augusta, Georgia, a course that uh, we're familiar with. We've been there. Uh, it's a venue that's hosted multiple national championships in the past of all age groups. Uh, but we raced there in 2019. And what's, what's kind of crazy to think about through all this experience we've been through, we haven't had a collegiate road national championship in three years. It's a long time. And our seniors this year were freshmen the last time we had a road national championship. With your job as a cycling coach, now going back to that, that particular topic and in getting into being a cycling coach or a coach in general, what what's the what's the hardest part of your role? Well, I, recruiting. I, you talk to any coach at in any sport in college, and recruiting is it's the toughest thing, but it's the most fun thing because you're meeting new people who. Think back when you were a senior in high school and you were thinking about just going to college and you're going and visiting places. And it's just it's just ex- an exciting time in young people's lives, not just for the student, but for the parents. Uh, it's a big change for the parents as well. So I get to meet parents. I get to meet these kids. But it is challenging because you are competing for their attention. You're competing for, you know, their ability uh, and you're having to tell a story and sell yourself, sell your college, sell your team as it being the best choice for them to make. And so I would say recruiting is definitely the toughest, but I, I love it because it's an opportunity to meet new people and tell our story. And uh, I just, I love telling the story of Lees McRae as a college and as a team and the history and the program, back to what you were saying about notable writers that we have had throughout the years, it's, it's a long list. And when you get down to it, you know, not that many people are going to get that chance to become a Carrie Werner uh, or a Brent Bookwalter or a Carla Swart or Ali Stocker, but they will get four years guaranteed of good times and that opportunity just to be the best they can be. And then it's up to them how they want it to, to turn out. A lot of professionals today, you know, half of them probably did aim to go to that, and that's where they're at. But there's a large percentage, especially in criteriums, who this isn't what they set out to do. It was just something that over time they grew, got better, and then these doors start opening as to an opportunity to be a part of something, of a team that does this. And so that's definitely the the toughest part of it. But for me, I look at it as a as an opportunity to meet new people and tell our story. And then it's uh, in their hands to make the best decision for them. That it, it isn't always about our team either. It's really mainly about what do you want to study? Uh, do we line up with your academic interests? Do you see yourself loving living in Banner Elk? Because those are the two most important things. And then the third thing is cycling. Like, you you know, I feel like they're going to enjoy that and love that. But if they don't have the right academic focus and, and they, you know, they must love 
living in Banner Elk, they must love living in the mountains because that's part of the experience of going to Lee's McRae. So, you know, uh, again, go back to what you're saying about how do you find positivity or how do I always lean towards that? It's like, well, I got to find a way to enjoy the thing that is the toughest thing to do. I'm going to be better at the toughest thing to do if I find a way to love doing it. Uh, and I love that part of it. I'd say that's the toughest. The next toughest would be retaining. <laughs> Retention is tough across every college and university. That's the next biggest job. And, uh, you know, everything else is, I won't say easy, but it, it kind of pales in comparison between uh, those two things. So the the people that you named, Brent Bookwalter, Carla Swore, Kerry Werner, some others, they're not just random names that you pulled out of a hat there. Those are some of Lee's McRae's, you know, famous alums, right? Yes. Yes. They graduated from, from Lee's McRae and were uh, outstanding, amazing bicycle racers while they were here. And I mean, you know, they're in the halls of fame. Their names are on plaques. I, I use them as an example and tell stories about them quite often. I, at the time, all those riders uh, were at Lee's McRae. I coached against them at Cumberland University, which is where I, I started coaching for eight years. And so I, I knew them. I watched them every day. I got to see them compete. I got to know all the Lee's McRae coaches and all the athletes. And I, I, I admired them. I loved them. I mean, it was tough to get your butt kicked by them every weekend, but you know, we had a few riders that could compete head to head, but I admired them because they had such a high level of intensity uh, at every race. They attacked every race. They were highly motivated. They, you know, maybe they didn't do everything exactly the way you you would want if you're a coach, but they're college kids. You know, you're that's what college is all about is about going and having fun and making some mistakes here and there, because the only way you're really going to learn is it's, it's you're going to learn more through your failure, far more through your failure than you ever will from your success. And to your point earlier about, about failure, it's let's finish on that point. So like, let's finish on that point here. Cause we're right about the hour mark now. So, you know, this concept of failure, and explaining to a 22-year-old, which I don't know if it's any easier or harder than explaining to me at the age of 43, it, it, you know, that failure is an essential part of life. And it is not just something that you will see in sport. It is something you will see in school, You something you will see in life, in profession, in whatever it is that you do. Failure and success are right there next to each other. And you will have to fail because that is just life. How do you confront this? How do you teach it? How do you make people comfortable with the idea that you're going to lose and it's okay? That, well, it definitely takes time. And I try first, I try to get a glimpse of their background and history to find out what experience they bring to the table. How many races have they done? What level of races have they done? Have they ever been to a national championship event and had their eyes opened? Or have they only raced locally with small fields? Have they played any other sports where, yeah, you're, you're either going to win or lose every single time you go out there and race, but you do get the taste of victory quite often in other sports. Uh, but if you dig down at the personal level, uh, on a stats level, there's a lot of failure. And I don't have an answer to why like I see failure as my friend, but failure is my friend because it's the thing that teaches me the most. It has always taught me the most. And I try to help young people understand that it's not the end of the world if it doesn't go your way. Like, find things within what you did that you did do well. You might have lost. You might have not gotten the result that you wanted at the end. But I guarantee you, if we unravel what took place, we can find something that you did well, at least one, if not five or 10 things that you did well. Let's focus on that. All right. Yes. 
we're going to have to talk about the things that you did not do well and improve upon that. But there's going to be a lot of things that they did do that were successful, that were improvements, that helped them progress, even though that end result isn't what they truly wanted. And to find a way to just accept the fact that you're going to, you're going to meet uh, resistance, you're going to face obstacles, you're going to hit adversity. They just expect that. Expect it. It's not going to go smoothly. It's not going to go exactly to your plan. I mean, every team before a criterion, I mean, it's, this is rare where someone sets down and sets a plan together and then they go out and it went exactly the way they thought it was going to go. I mean, exactly. Like when in the history of bicycle racing has a race gone exactly the way someone thought it was going to go? I mean, there's adages which say no battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. Or Mike Tyson, everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the face. I mean, like, it just it just doesn't ever happen. And it's just because you, you've got a mix of, you know, 50 to 100, 150 people with, uh, with different ideas of what success and desires look like, and you put them all together— some teams are better at this than others of identifying and executing. You know, this is the thing that I really learned from, from the ball sport world is just, you're going to get another opportunity though. This moment might not have worked out the way you wanted. As I said, there's things that you, you definitely and likely did do better than uh, the last time. Let's acknowledge that. Let's celebrate that. Let's find a way to be happy about that. But then that thing that didn't go well, what is it that you can control within that, that next time you can make a better and different decision? Or what is the preparation necessary that you need to do between now and the next time to uh, be stronger, to be faster, whatever the case may be, improve skills so that that outcome is better? And trusting that if every day you control what you can control, don't worry about what other people say about you. Don't worry about what the competition's doing. Just worry about yourself. Worry about your teammates. And if everybody's executing every day, doing the things that you're going to do, over time, the cumulative effect of that is going to get you going in the right direction. You're still going to fail, even when you do everything exactly right. There is no guarantee that you're going to be successful. But you're going to be better prepared. You're going to have a, a taste of success. And I think the thing that we all want this is what we all want. Like it'd be great to win more often. I think we all would love to win more often. That would feel that would feel wonderful. What we really want is that we want all our hard work to at least put us in the fight. And if we're in the fight enough times, we're going to figure out a way to win one of those every now and then. And as long as we are continuing to progress to put ourselves in the fight and if we just stick to it that sooner or later, we're going to figure out how to win. You don't go from middle of the pack to winning races. There's like a progression. Anybody who's race criteriums, especially, or road races, are like, there's a progression to hanging on at the back to, oh, now it's pretty comfortable in the middle to now all of a sudden you're, you're in towards the front and then you can attack and be in breakaways. Like, it's a process. It's not going to happen overnight. If you can just combine all those habits and keep the faith like, I really think having faith that all that's just really going to work in your favor over time. And you know what's interesting about the sport of cycling is that, you know, the people, if you look around, it's the people that just stick with it over the long haul who end up having the most success. Like, they're still there. You know, it's the people that don't give up. And they don't give up because they have too much at stake. And when you got a lot to lose because you've worked your tail off, then you're going to figure it out if you stick with it. Well, Coach Tim Hall, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, well, my pleasure. I appreciate this opportunity to talk with you. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the show. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium Network of Shows. Today's show was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly. Next week, our guest will be Paige Kostanecki of ButcherBox Cycling. So come back here again next week and join us for 
more stories from our Criterium Nation. What an episode. That was amazing. When that one person said that thing and then the other person totally like set them straight. Oh man, that was great. I'm gonna have to go back and listen to that again. But hey, since I have your attention now, hello, cyclocross friends, new friends and old friends and soon to be friends. My name's Bill. I host another show on the Wide Angle Podium Podcast Network. It's called Cyclocross Radio. And we talk to the biggest stars in cyclocross and even the medium stars in cyclocross and some of the soon-to-be stars in cyclocross. We also have a panel discussion we call the Media Pit with my buddy Zach and Michael where we go over all of the new rules that might be coming out and the calendar situations and races that happen. It's a great time. It's a great conversation. We built an amazing community that we want you to be part of. So go to wideanglepodium.com Become a member there, then go to your favorite podcast app and subscribe to Cyclocross Radio. Do it. Do it now. Cyclocross friends.